This week has been a massive week for every West Ham fan. <laughs> there was a rumour that the rector and our resident Scouser Ken had become bookies this week and were taking bets on how quickly it would take before I mentioned it in the sermon. <laughs> well, it didn't take long. Our first European final for 47 years and a victory. And on Wednesday morning, when I sat down to write this message, I got a text from a very good friend of mine, who's the ops manager at the church I grew up in in Chesington, and he said this, Trev, I know the Hammers are chasing a trophy, but I thought you'd be encouraged by a gospel trophy. Adrian Park has been leading our our version of Christianity Explored. He's loving it, and he's very, very good at it. Thought you'd be encouraged. Praise God. AD's story is a pretty amazing one. Brought up on a tough estate in West London. The first time I heard about AD was when I met an old friend in Chesington. And when you meet old friends, it's not long before you start talking about your kids. And I said, Tony, mate, how are your kids? And he shared with me that his daughter was going out with a guy called AD. Nice guy, but not a Christian. A few weeks later, I got back from a youth camp and I was absolutely exhausted. And then I saw up on my phone on the calendar, it came on the door, welcoming people. And I must admit, I thought, oh, I'm I'm exhausted. I can't really go, but I thought I will go. And just before the service started, walking up the stairs was my mate's daughter, Sophie, and her boyfriend, Aidy. Super pleased to see them. I greeted them and I sat with them just over there. They came back for supper and everything just seemed to click. So I said to AD, look mate, why don't you and me meet, meet, meet up and we'll go through Mark's gospel. So for the next few weeks, I met him at Paddington Hospital where he worked. And as we read together, he saw just how brilliant the Lord Jesus was. And there in Paddington Hospital, a spiritual birth took place. And God gave me the privilege of being the spiritual midwife. And if James was here now, he'd say, Trevor, that's what I mean in chapter 1, verse 18. Just have a look. He chose to give A.D. birth through the word of truth. Now, once someone receives spiritual birth, what do you want for them? Maybe someone in your life, a friend, a colleague, a neighbor, a member of your family becomes a Christian. Maybe you're a parent or a grandparent, an uncle or aunt, a godmother or godfather. Maybe you're a children's worker or a youth worker. And you have spiritual care over those people. Well, let me get a little bit more personal. What do you want for yourself? What do you want for yourself? And again, look at chapter 1, verse 4. James will say, look, what I want, what God wants for you is chapter 1, verse 4, is to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In fact, the reason James writes his book is to answer that very question. What do you want? What does it look like for someone to be mature? What does it look like? What is it that they are aiming for? What does it maturity look like when you're praying for it? Throughout his book, James wants us to focus on two main things. Firstly, how you and me 
relate to God's word. And then when we've got that right, okay, then how do we relate to God's world? How do we relate to God's word? How do we relate to God's world? They're the two things that James wants us to constantly come back to and focus on. And today I just want us to focus on verse 19. In this brilliant little phrase that James uses, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. This, if you like, is the shortest definition in James, which describes the nature and the character of a mature Christian. And just look at it again. Everyone. No Christian is excluded. And we are to be what? Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. If you think about it, it's a kind of whole body experience. Quick to listen, ears, we're to listen. Slow to speak, our mouth, how we speak. Slow to anger, our nature, how we act. Maybe how we use our hands. Now, I don't think it would be pushing it to say that our culture does the opposite to those three things. Our culture is slow to listen, it's quick to speak, and it's often quick to become angry. So let's see how James works out these three marks, these three steps to maturity. And the first one is quick to listen. Now, I don't know if you picked up, just as it was beautiful, the Bible so beautifully read, I don't know if you picked up how listening absolutely dominates the whole passage. You might say, actually, the whole of James. It's about listening and it's about doing. And the proof that you've listened is that you do. Just look at verse 19 again. James calls us to be quick to listen. Look at verse 21. James calls us to be to humbly accept the word you hear. Verses 22 and 25. James twice calls us to obey, to do what it says. So, the three words James used to describe how every Christian should relate to God's word is clear. We are to be quick to listen. We're to humbly accept it. We are to obey what it says. For the Christian who wants to be mature, mature, listening, and this is so important. If you don't get this, you won't get the book of James. Listening is never, ever a passive exercise, but it's always, always leads to action. If you listen to God, it always leads to action. It always leads to change. You see, James wants to be to be crystal clear to us that the word that the word that saves us, one eighteen, the word that gives us life, one eighteen, its work has just begun. You see, God does not want us to be spiritual babies. He doesn't want us to be immature Christians living on milk and liquidized food all our lives never growing up, acting in a spiritual, childish way. And the way that we grow as Christians is cemented to how we listen to God's word. So let me ask you a simple question that I'm asking myself as I read James is, what's your relationship to this? What personal relationship do you have to this? How dependent are you on this? John Owen said of the great uh, man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress that his blood was bibline. 
His blood was Bibline. Now, I don't want to take you on a Bible reading guilt trip. I don't want to do that. Because that might, the impact of that might last till about Wednesday, and then the guilt will fizzle out and you'll be back to spiritual immaturity. When you listen, the obvious question to ask is what? Who is speaking? You see, whatever hobby you have, whatever is your greatest interest, whatever profession you are involved in, if you could have a few hours with the most gifted, the most knowledgeable person in your field, I don't think you would turn it down. And if you did, you'd be a fool. If you were wanting, if you were wanting to be a great football coach and Pep Guardiola said, I'll give you an hour, son, you'd be a fool to say, no. Why? Because you know that listening to them will change you, change your thinking, which will then change your behavior. The listening would not be passive. It would produce change. And that's the approach James wants to take with, with, to, for when we first consider who's speaking. Who is speaking? Chapter 1, verse 5. The one who's speaking has unlimited wisdom, who gives it generously without finding fault. He longs to fill our ears with his wisdom, which will change every single area of our life. If we listen to God's wisdom and we put it into action, it will change every single relationship you have for good. Just turn on to chapter 3, verse 17, and James kind of puts in one verse or two verses. He sums up what God's wisdom is, the kind of wisdom God wants to fill your ears and your hearts with that change your life. Chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom of God that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, Peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, as you read through James, what you see is that he's the master of painting pictures, word pictures. And we get the first one in chapter 1, verse 21. Just pop your eyes down and have a look. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word which is planted in you, which can save you. Now, the word that James uses here for moral filth is a really important word. And here we find the picture that he's painting. Because it's the same word that's used in chapter 2, verse 2. Just look at chapter 2, verse 2. We're gonna, Will's going to be preaching this next week. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold or fine clothes, and a poor man, it comes in, a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. Now, that's the same word that James uses about our moral filth. See, James does not want us to have a shabby moral life. A person comes in with shabby clothes. That's the same word that's used in this verse here. Now, James does not want us to have a shabby moral life. But instead, he wants our life to be reflection of his wise and his good character. And for that to happen, what have you got to do? You've got to be quick to listen. Quick to listen to our all-wise God. And then as you listen, you're to learn to humbly accept his word. 
Now again, ponder this question. In your daily life, whose word do you humbly accept? Whose word do you humbly accept? We usually accept, humbly accept someone's word if they are greater and more knowledgeable than we are. To ignore that person's word would be utterly, utterly foolish. We nearly always accept someone's word if we are convinced that they want our best. If you're convinced somebody wants your best and they are far more knowledgeable than you, you put those two things together, they are more knowledgeable than you and they want your best, then you will humbly accept their word. And the God of the Bible ticks all of those boxes. Our all-wise God does not want us walking around with spiritually shabby clothes. So what does spiritually shabby clothes look like, you might say? Well, the answer to that is actually found at the end of verse 1, in verses 26 to 27. You see, the first mark of a spiritually shabby life is when you speak in your relationships with no reference to the all-wise God. What you say, your tongue, the way you speak, has no reference to the all-wise God. Look at verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious, Christians, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue, deceive themselves, and their religion, their Christian life, is worthless. Now, James will say a little bit more about that, or we could say a lot more about that in chapter 3. The second mark of a spiritually shabby life is when you act towards the most vulnerable in a different way to your heavenly father. Now, just think about your spiritual state before you were a Christian. What were you? You were spiritually dead with absolutely no hope. You were spiritually utterly vulnerable. And what did God do when you were spiritually vulnerable with no hope? He came to you. He saved you. He had mercy on you. And God expects the same kind of attitude to the most vulnerable in our society. He expects you and me to reflect his character. Look at verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and the widows in their distress, to look after the most vulnerable. James will explain more about what that looks like in chapter 2. The third mark of a spiritually shabby life is when you adopt the same value system as the world around you. When your friends, when your neighbours, when your family who aren't Christians, when they look at you, do they really see any difference between you and them? You speak in the same way. You have the same value system about others who are the most vulnerable. You spend your money in the same way. You spend your time in roughly the same way. They see no difference. To use James's word, you've been polluted by the world, verse 27, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Your value system is the same as your friends at school, the same as the people in, the, in your office. And James will explain what that looks like more in chapters 4 and 5. His second word picture is found in verses 27 to 25. Let's just read those verses again. Just look down at verses 22. 
This is his second word picture. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in all they do. See, as we gaze at this picture that James paints, the colours are bright and the meaning is very easy to see. Easy to say what easy to see what God says you must do, easy to see what God says you should not do. Do not merely listen. Do not merely listen. Why? Because it's God who's speaking. Instead, do what it says. Do what he says. Why? Because it's it's God who's speaking. And don't, don't be, a, don't be foolish and walk around all day with a spiritual bad hair day. You know, on Saturday, which is usually my day off, you know, I get up and I think, oh, I need to go to the shops, but I can't be bothered to have a shower and my hair's all over the place. Um, you know, you've just got up, you've got a bed head. And, um, and my, my daughter, my middle daughter, says, she calls it squirrel head, where my hair's kind of all over the place. So what do I do? I put on a cap. And then I can go to the shop because no one can see my hair. You know, I'm not looking at the mirror. I'm not going to go out, go out with a bad hair day. Well, James says, look at God's words so clearly you don't have a spiritual bad hair day. Don't forget, don't walk around like with a giant pus-filled zit on your face. You look at it in the mirror and then you walk out. It's on the end of your nose. Instead, James says, recognize your sin. And with God's wisdom, deal with it. You see, the law of God reflects God's beautiful wisdom. And when you, the more you look intently into the, the law of God, what does it do? It frees you. Freedom to be what God has created you to be. Blessed, because you have his precious word to guide you in every area of your life. But sadly, forgetting is so easy to do, isn't it? As individuals and as God's family, if you're anything like me, what we need to learn to do is to be creative in thinking of ways we can remind ourselves throughout the day what we have learned from God's word. You know, sometimes when I'm walking along and I have my phone, did it the other day. I was walking along. I've been reading God's. I've been preparing a, a, a talk for the young people, and uh, I thought I just need a, a half an hour walk. So I came out and I was walking down Oxford Street, and then suddenly the three headings for my talk came to me. I thought, Trevor, that's quite good. So what did I do? I got my phone out and I texted them to myself, so I wouldn't forget them. You know, in the book that you've got, the James book, the, I've written quiet time notes for every day. The last thing is. Uh, the, the, the meeting with God, the last thing is a truth to remember. Now, whether you use them or whether you don't, but if you meet with God in the morning, you read his word, why not text yourself the main point from God's word that you've learned that day? And then maybe when you're on the, on the tube to work, you can look at it. Maybe you're on the tube coming home, you can look at it. Maybe at coffee time, maybe at your lunchtime. The main truth that you've learned from God's word that day, text to yourself. So you don't forget it, that you've got it. If your life is anything like mine, we're busy. Busy with work, busy with family, busy with hobby. 
These things can so easily combine to make it wonderfully easy to forget God's word. So we've got to help each other. We're a community of God's people. I've got to help you to remember God's word, and you've got to help me. That's why doing this, James, all together, all the children, young people, families, adults, part of that is so that we can be talking about the same passage all week. We can be helping each other not to forget God's word. Second one, second point James wants to focus on in this winning combination is slow to speak. A combination designed to help us to be mature and followers of the Lord Jesus. And what we must understand is this, is the relationship between these three, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. You see, if we don't get the first one right, quick to listen, then we have no chance of getting the second two right, slow to speak and slow to become angry. Do you get that? The first one is quick to listen. Quick to listen to whom? God, the all-wise one. Now, if we don't get that one right, you have no hope of getting the second two right. Slow to speak, slow to become angry. It's so important that James starts with that one. Now, James wants to do, what he wants to do is, throughout the whole book, he wants to give us a spiritual medical. Now, I think this is still the same, but often when you go to see a doctor and they give you a medical, what's one of the first things they do? One of the first things they do is tell you to open your mouth. And then they get that sort of wooden thing and they put it in your mouth. And what do they say? They say, ah... What they want to do is look at your tongue. I don't know why they want to. Maybe the doctor's here. You can come and tell me. They want to look at your tongue. Open up. Uh, and they put their thing down. Well, James actually does exactly the same. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Just turn on to that. He wants to give us a spiritual me- uh, medical. He wants to look at our tongue. And when he looks at our tongue, chapter 3, verse 8, what does he see? It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Now just think about it. If my tongue, if your tongue is like that, then it's no wonder the all-wise God says, be slow to speak. And if we don't realize that, if we don't listen to our all-wise God that that's what our tongue is like, then the deadly poison will continue to follow. If we don't come to our loving Father seeking his wisdom to change, then the poison will continue to follow. If we don't change, if we don't change and come to our loving Father for him to change us, then what will our religion, what will our Christian lives be? Verse 26, they will be worthless. And if you feel a complete failure in this area, then join the club. Remember your father, chapter, five verse, chapter 1, verse 5, is generous with his wisdom without finding fault. The last one is slow to become angry. The last move we learn is probably the most difficult to explain. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. James tells us to be slow to speak all right, James tells us to be slow to speak, but he doesn't tell us to stop speaking. Be slow to speak, but don't stop speaking. And it's the same with anger. James tells us to be slow to anger. He doesn't tell us to never be angry. Now, for some people here, 
The very word angry sends shivers down your spine. Slow to, be, slow to become angry, well, you would rather no, angry, no anger at all. Thank you very much, Trevor. No anger at all. Thank you very much, James. I said earlier that our culture changes the combination from slow to listen, quick to speak, quick to become angry. Our culture is slow to listen. It's quick to speak. It's quick to become angry. Human anger, look at chapter 1, verse 20. Is, this is the very thing that James is getting at here. You see, anger in our culture is marked by two things. Anger in our culture is marked by speed, and it's marked by selfishness. Speed and selfishness, which is what James means in verse 20. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. If, speed, if, if anger is speedy and selfish, it will not produce the righteousness that God desires. Just the other day, I was driving my daughter home across the Lambeth, across Lambeth Bridge. A car came up behind me, clearly in a rush. I was in the middle of the road doing the 20 mile an hour limit. As I looked in my mirror, I could see a person who had exploded with anger. They were shouting, they were screaming, they were hitting the steering wheel. They were in a fierce rage and then they came up alongside me, put the window down and were shouting at me. Now thankfully that was the limit to my experience of their anger. But I'm sure there are people here whose experience of anger is very different. You've literally felt the force of another's anger. And to think of anger in anything like a positive way is incredibly difficult for you. Maybe even impossible. Because anger in your experience has been marked by speed. It's been marked by damaging selfishness. So what I want us to do here is to show the difference between human anger and the Lord Jesus' anger. Because he is our saviour. He is our model. He is our hero. He is everything that we should want to be, isn't he? Everything that we should want to be. If I could define Jesus' anger, it would be this. It would go something like this. Jesus' anger is God's active and consistent opposition to our rebellion and its effects. God's active and consistent opposition to our rebellion and its effects. So what did Jesus' anger look like? Well, to do that, I want you to turn to two very short passages. The first one is in Mark chapter 3. And as I read it, I want you to ask yourself, how is Jesus' anger working out here? And how is it different to human anger? Your anger, my anger, or maybe the anger that you've experienced against yourself. Look at chapter Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of them. Stand up in front of everyone. 
Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed that their stubborn hearts said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. When Jesus looks at this man, what does he see? When he looks at the man, what does he see? He sees someone made in God's image. And therefore, Jesus wants only one thing for him. And that's for him to be set free from the effects of sin upon his life. He wants nothing else but that. Set free from the effects of the fall. Why? Set free from the effects of the fall so that he can flourish. When Jesus looks at those in power who are oppressing this man, abusing this man made in the image of God, how does he feel? Verse 5, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He's angry. He's angry because they are despising someone made in God's precious image. He's angry that they don't want the image bearer to be healed and restored. He's angry at their stubborn hearts. But his anger, and this is the really important bit, his anger is controlled when it challenges oppressive power. It's selfless. His anger, chapter 3, verse 6, costs him what? It's not about him. His anger costs him everything. His anger is selfless. The second example is found in Matthew 21. Please turn to that, and this is a much shorter story. Matthew chapter 21. It's when Jesus goes to the temple. You all probably know that story. And he drives them out. Matthew chapter 12. Sorry, Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the table of the money, money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. You see, these people are more concerned about cash, not converts, money, not mercy. So Jesus drives them out. Why does he drive them out? So the most vulnerable can worship God. That's why he drives them out. And often the the verse that's missed out in this story, and it's a beautiful part of the story, is verse 14. Just look at verse 14. This is so beautiful. This is what godly anger produces Look at verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. You see, when Jesus is angry, the most vulnerable are drawn to him. When there's godly anger here, the most vulnerable, the ones who usually are at the end of receiving human anger, the most vulnerable, 
Here, the most vulnerable are drawn to Jesus when he's angry. Why? Because they know that he's utterly and totally for them. His anger is controlled and it brings flourishing to them. It brings healing to them because they can worship the one true God. Jesus' anger is controlled, it's selfless, and it leads to the most vulnerable being protected. Why? So they can flourish. And this is, this is Jesus' anger. This is the kind of anger that God wants to develop in you and me. And as we go through James, we'll see in chapter 2 about the favoritism and how God hates that. A, a value system that values some more than the others. And Jesus wants us angry with that. Anger that's controlled. Anger that changes us so that we love the most vulnerable. So they can flourish. In chapters 4 and 5, he's going to get into some real stuff about those who oppress the poor. And he's want us to be angry about those who oppress the poor. We've got to work out where is that in our culture. And as a church and as individuals, we've got to have godly anger that's controlled, that opposes, that speaks to power, so that those who are most vulnerable can flourish because they're made in the image of God. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father in heaven, when we look into your word, it is a mirror. And we often see ourselves as we truly are. But Father, you've seen us as we truly are much quicker than we do. And you see us as we truly are in much brighter colors of our sin than we will ever see. And yet you still choose to love us. In fact, when we are at our worst, your son came to die so that we could be forgiven. Father, we thank you that you are altogether wonderful. May we be drawn to your wisdom, that we reflect our saviour, and we make an impact in the relationships that we're in, for good, so that people are restored and healed by your wisdom. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.